Christianity after some time, suppose that when you became a Christian, your tribulations might cease, your afflictions might abate. Experience probably taught you quite the opposite. Indeed, being a Christian does not spare you from afflictions and, in fact, may increase those afflictions. Do afflictions, tribulations, difficulties, things like poverty and illness and persecution and death, do those things threaten your glorying in the hope of the glory of God? Far from it. In this passage, we see that you can indeed glory or rejoice even in tribulations. And you do that, number one, by knowing how God uses tribulations, and number two, by being sure of God's love for you. So we have just two points this evening, since it's such a nice sunny, sunny evening and you guys did not get to have pancakes or anything tonight. We only have two points. The first of them is this. You can glory in tribulation by knowing how God uses it. You can glory in tribulation by knowing how God uses it in verses 3 and 4. The apostle begins with the assertion that we glory in tribulations. And not only that, and the that, of course, refers back to the peace with God, the grace in which we stand, and our rejoicing or glorying in the hope of the glory of God. But we also glory in tribulations. As we said before, the word glory means to boast or exalt or rejoice, to be happy. And he says here that we are happy, we exult in tribulations. The word tribulations literally means pressure, to be pressed down upon. Think of a a diamond being formed from coal, being pressed upon. Time and and pressure make a diamond. And, And this is the same kind of language. When you are in tribulations, you are being pressed upon. They refer to unhappy circumstances, difficulties, trials, afflictions, suffering. These could be physical sufferings, right? Illnesses, injuries, the effects of aging, perhaps poverty or lack, simple pains or hunger. These could refer to spiritual sufferings, mental or emotional anguishes. Things like anxiety, fear, sorrow, dread, discomfort, temptations to sin, the pain that comes from resisting sin, spiritual torments from the sin around you. Now, these tribulations can come from outside of you, or they can come from inside of you. When they come from outside of you, of course, they come from the world. The world who hates your Lord and therefore hates you. Or from the devil who is the spirit which the world is currently following. When they come from inside of you, they come from what we call your flesh. Your corrupted nature. The remaining power of sin in you. Sometimes you suffer because of your own sins and folly. You sin... And you suffer the natural consequences of it. Sometimes you make a bad decision or a foolish mistake and you suffer some consequences for it. Sometimes you suffer because of other people's sins. Maybe you inherited some consequences 
of someone else's sins. Or maybe you've been treated evil, evilly, by someone who is sinning against you. Maybe you've been the victim of great evil. Or maybe you even suffer persecution for standing up for the Lord. At other times you might suffer or enter into tribulation because you are striving to resist sin. Some of your suffering is deserved. And in a relative sense, some of your suffering is not deserved. There is, of course, a sense in which all of us deserve to suffer because we are all sinners. But I mean in the relative sense, meaning you did not commit any particular sin, you did not do anything to deserve the affliction which you find yourself under. Sometimes you suffer because you are a Christian. Other times you suffer merely as a Christian. The thing that I want you to understand is this. All of that suffering, all of those different things I mentioned, and what other kinds of suffering you can imagine, all of those are what the Apostle means by tribulation. And the peace that you have with God is what causes you to hope that you will one day escape it. Is that not your hope in the glory of God, that you will one day be free from tribulations? You see, there is an inherent contradiction between hoping in the glory of God and suffering. Do you suppose that you will suffer in glory? You will not. There will be no pain, nor sorrow, nor suffering, nor death, nor disease, nor any of those kinds of things in glory. So we must grapple with these distresses. And sometimes Christians, Christians get cancer, just like the non-Christian. Christians have pain, just like the non-Christian. But as it is right now, we glory not merely in the midst of or in spite of those tribulations. We glory in those tribulations. Do you see that? We glory in tribulations. It is one thing to deny that they exist. Or one thing to keep a stiff upper lip and to say, whatever else occurs, I'm just going to look at the bright side. But that's not what the apostle is talking about here. The tribulations themselves are actually an occasion for our glorying. Jesus said, blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. He's saying glory in your tribulations. In Acts chapter 5, the apostles had been arrested and beaten for preaching the gospel. They departed, Acts 5.41 says, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. That's glorying in tribulation. Peter, who was there that day, would later write, Rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. 
If you are reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you, for the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. On their part, God is blasphemed, but on your part, he is glorified. One more, St. Paul, the author of this passage, and no stranger to tribulations. He was once outside of a place called Lystra, and he had been stoned and left for dead. He had been shipwrecked. He had been in famine. He had been imprisoned. You know all of these things about him. But he says this in 2 Corinthians 12.10. I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in need, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. What he is saying in so many words is, we rejoice, we glory in tribulations. How so? How does the Christian find joy, even rejoice in tribulations? How do we glory in something from which we hope to ultimately be freed? The answer begins here in the middle of verse 3. Knowing that tribulation produces perseverance, and perseverance character, and character hope. You must know that tribulation, difficulties, sufferings, afflictions, is actually a means of your sanctification. It is a means by which God sanctifies you and prepares you for glory and preserves you until that day. The road to eternal happiness goes through the valley of the shadow of death. We mentioned Paul in Lystra. He was stoned and left for dead. And in Acts 14.22, immediately after that, he says, We must, through many tribulations, enter the kingdom of God. We must, through many tribulations. And, and I studied the scriptures, and the only way that I see that we can escape tribulations on our way to glory is to die prematurely. That is the only way that you will escape tribulations, is for the Lord to take you home. But far from threatening your hope, these tribulations actually serve to strengthen your hope. And that's why you must see how God uses it for your sake. You see, tribulation produces, we see it here, perseverance. Perseverance means patience, constancy, strength, firmness, stick-to-itiveness, tenacity. It refers to a spiritual fortitude. That spiritual ability to endure hardship like a good soldier for Christ. It means undergoing difficulties without becoming bitter at God. And that is really the dividing line, isn't it? When we suffer, the temptation is to become bitter with God. And this is the alternative to rejoice in those sufferings, to glory in those tribulations. This is that virtue for which Job is praised in the book of James, in James 5.11. Remember, Job endured grievous tribulations, but his faith did not fail. And James said, remember the patience of Job. That's this word right here, perseverance. Remember, in his trials, Job did not sin. Nor, and this is important, did he charge God with wrongdoing. Job, in his suffering, did not charge God with doing him wrong. 
He was not embittered. Yes, he suffered. He did not pretend the suffering was fake. Yes, he was sorrowful. Yes, he, he reached very close to despair. But he did not grow bitter with God. You see, perseverance is that spiritual strength by which the good seed keeps the word and bears fruit. The word patience in our scripture reading, Luke 8, Luke 8 chapter, chapter 8, verse 15, it talks about patience. That's perseverance. What's the difference between that seed and the other seeds? It lasts. It's there at the end. It endures and bears fruit with patience. The ones that fell on the other ground do not endure with patience. But here is the difficulty. Perseverance only comes by persevering. And persevering only comes by facing tribulations. I would rather just have the perseverance and start with that. But that is not how it works. Perseverance is the fruit, the result of undergoing trials and standing firm and proving your faith and proving the grace of God in you. But perseverance then in turn produces something else. When you have patiently endured suffering, that in turn produces something we call character. This word character is used to describe things that are tested and proved. Like gold and silver are put into the crucible. They're tested. And when they come out of the crucible, they are called proven. Or they have character. When they come out of the fire, they are proven, and in the same way, when you come out of the trial, the fires of a trial, you are proven. So really, I would, if we could, I would translate this word as proven character. Perseverance produces proven character, character that's been tested. Paul used this word of Timothy. Remember, he says, I have no one like Timothy. Timothy, who has a, he was a man of proven character in Philippians chapter 2, verse 22. He said, because As a son with a father, he has served with me in the ministry and sufferings of the gospel. You see, Timothy had a proven character. He was a known quantity. Timothy went through the same kinds of sufferings that Paul went through. And Paul could see by the way that Timothy conducted himself in those sufferings that he was a proven man. Now, like perseverance, character is only shown or developed through tribulation. James says, blessed is the man who endures temptation. For when he has been approved, that's our proven character word, when he has his character proven, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. I like the thought of a crown. I'm not so fond of the things I have to endure to get it. But that is in God's wisdom how we receive those crowns. Peter says this in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, 
may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. He's talking about that proven character that shows up after you're tested for a little while. And so tribulations, you see, produce perseverance, and perseverance produces proven character, and proven character in turn produces hope. Hope, as we have said, refers to a confident expectation of some future good or happiness. In this case, we hope in the glory of God, which you remember means that God will be glorified in us and that God will glorify us and restore us to his image. When you were justified by faith, when you believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, you were given peace with God. Remember that you have peace with God. And that's not an ebbing and flowing peace. That is an objective forever peace. God's enmity against you is settled. You are now his friend and not his enemy. You have a standing in the grace of God. You stand in a state of grace. And you have hope in the glory of God. That feels pretty good. Then what happens is this. Some tribulation comes along and knocks the wind out of you. Some affliction, some disaster, some pain, some loss. That feels pretty bad. But here, because you have faith, because you stand in the grace of God, because you hope in the glory of God, you by the grace of God, patiently endure that tribulation without becoming bitter against God and not complaining against God. You stand firm. You hang on. You trust Him. You believe the God who made peace with you is not going to abandon that project. He is going to keep working with you. And so when you patiently endure, trusting God and not grumbling not becoming bitter towards him, you obtain a proven character. You've come through the fire, yes, hurt, sorrowed, struck down, but not destroyed. You come through the fire proven. And then that proven character, that proven character produces something else, and that's a new and greater hope. That hope gets built upon the the hope that you had when you were justified and given peace with God. Such that the tribulation, far from threatening your hope, actually serves to strengthen it. Do you see how God is using that tribulation in your life? He is using that not to take away your hope, but to strengthen your hope. We need to recognize as well that tribulations not only reveal and show our true character, but they also reveal and show the true character of God. Because you see, after each trial, after each time you have to trust the Lord and hope, hope against hope, each time you do that and you see how he carries you through, you have renewed reasons and new reasons for trusting in him. You see his goodness. When you start to face the trial, you're like, how will I make it through this? But then on the other side of the trial, you can look back and you see how the Lord sustains you. Therefore, your confidence in God and in his character also grows. 
So you can glory in your tribulations knowing that God uses them to increase your hope. Moreover, you can glory in your tribulations by being sure of God's love for you. That's our second point, by being sure of God's love for you. Proverbs 13.12 says, Hope deferred makes the heart sick. We've all been disappointed by something or someone at some time. You know that feeling, that dejected feeling, that heartbroken feeling of disappointment. And the, and the level of disappointment is proportional to the amount of weight or hope you were putting on that expected outcome. Sometimes this word disappoint is translated as put to shame, which we read in the psalm, put to shame. And remember, hope always pertains to something in the future, right? You have hope now, but its object is in the future. You're, you're looking for something in the future. And in that sense, hope can be kind of risky. Haman had hoped to hang the Jews. His hope disappointed him. He was put to shame. The prophets of Baal had hoped that Baal would show up and perform miracles on Mount Carmel. Their hope was misplaced, and they were put to shame. Right? So hope is risky. But verse 5 says that the hope that we're talking about here, the hope that, w- that is produced by a proving character, it does not disappoint. It does not put to shame because it is hope in the living God, the living God with whom you have peace. Why doesn't this hope disappoint? Why won't hoping in God and hoping in the glory of God, why won't that bring you to shame? Well, the answer is in verse 5. Because the love of God has been poured out in your hearts by the Holy Spirit whom God has given you. Now, the love of God mentioned here has been taken in two ways. The first way, uh, Augustine, for example, took it this way. It's a reference to our love for God. And this does make some sense. And in verses 1 through 5, we find the three theological virtues of 1 Corinthians 13, faith, hope, and love. We find them in, in verses 1 through 5, right? It begins with faith, and it moves to hope, and then to love. So you see, that, that, that makes some sense. John Calvin, on the other hand, said that it actually refers to God's love for us. And this makes sense as well, because if you get to verse 8, we see God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So you see, he's here talking about the love of God for us. I think they're both actually correct. In this sense, in that neither our love to God nor God's love to us can be excluded from this passage. God's, our love to God and, and God's love to us always go together. They're like thunder and lightning, like an effect and a cause. Let's see if I can explain this, what I mean by this. 1 John 4.19 says, We love him because he first loved us. We love God, why? Because first he loved us, and he put his love for us in us, And that creates love from us. And so when God's love is poured into our hearts, 
It produces in us not only an awareness of his love for us, but also a corresponding love for him and then to his people. We should therefore understand love here as the love of God for us, which in turn produces love of God from us. So Calvin is right in the principal sense, but it implies what Augustine said. Now, your hope, you will see, is grounded. It's not disappointed or put to shame because you have an awareness of God's love in you. John Kelvin, believe it or not, actually used the word feeling. You feel God's love. This is a, a love subjectively understood. You experience it. This is something inside of you. God has put his love in your heart. It's not in, in verse 8, later on, we'll talk about how God shows his love on the cross. This is the love of God that you perceive in your soul because God put it there by the power of the Holy Spirit. And if you are sure that God loves you, this changes how you view your tribulations. You can be certain that even your difficulties are designed for your good. If God really does love you, you must understand that the tribulations he places upon you are loving as well. This is explained later on in Romans chapter 8. We'll, Lord willing, get there in a few years. Verses 35 and 39 talk about this, but we read that tribulations cannot separate us from the love of God that we have in Christ our Lord. So he picks up the same theme a little bit later on. But you have been justified by faith, so you have this peace with God. You are no longer his enemy. Tribulations in which to the enemies of God are indications of his wrath cannot be indications of his wrath to his beloved. Right? The suffering, of the, the suffering and misery of most mankind is evidence of God's hatred, of his anger. Not so with his beloved. They have peace with God. It cannot be his hatred. It cannot be his wrath. Tribulations were once an expression of God's enmity or wrath, but now they are actually benevolent and fatherly expressions of love. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 5 and 6 says much the same thing. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. Do you see what he's saying here is, whom the Lord loves, he sends through tribulations. Whom the Lord loves, he scourges with difficulties. He uses those things to sanctify you and to preserve you and to bring you all the way home. Now notice that this love of God has been poured into your heart by the Holy Spirit whom God has given you. The word poured here indicates an abundance, an extravagant or lavish sharing of love with you. God's love to you does not come in drips and drops or a trickle. It is poured out into your heart. Your heart is filled and overflowing with God's love. And, 
And beloved, I need you to examine your hearts and, and consider in your hearts, do you sense the love of God for you? Do you see yourself as his child and him as your father? Because that is the work of the Holy Spirit who seals us for the day of redemption. Right? It is by him that we cry, Abba, Father. Can you do that? That is the love of God in your heart that only God can put there. When you sense that love, then be assured. Be assured. He is not smiting you because his wrath is upon you. He is chastening you. He is disciplining you. He is directing you because he loves you. If you sense that love, you have to know that no earthly tribulations will keep God from bestowing his heavenly blessings upon you. This same word, poured out, is is used in Revelation chapter 16 several times. What do you think it's talking about in Revelation 16? The wrath of God. The wrath of God that is poured out upon the wicked. But that's not what Christians experience. And Christian, hear me on this. Undergoing difficulties are not evidence of God's curse upon you. And indeed, they may not even be evidence of his displeasure at you. You may need to examine things, right? You may need to examine your walk and your heart and see if you need to repent of something. You may be experiencing fatherly displeasure, but it may not be any of those things. Pastor Heupel this morning mentioned Job. Remember, Job suffered because he was righteous. Sometimes Christians suffer for no reason other than God wants to test and prove them. So do not allow the mere fact of difficulties to call into question God's love for you. Let them be an occasion where you search your heart for the love of God. Let them be an occasion where you examine your life. But do not resolve to say, because I am facing difficulties, therefore God is cursing me or God has cast me off. That's the opposite of what we're supposed to do. That's the opposite of perseverance, right? Perseverance says... I'm trusting the Lord in this. He has not cast me off. Now, with the mention of the Holy Spirit who was given to us here in verse 5, did you notice that in verses 1 through 5, we again see all three persons of the Trinity. The Lord Jesus Christ in verse 1, so the Son, the Father in verse 2, and now the Holy Spirit, indicating once again that God's work of salvation is a Trinitarian work. All three persons of the Trinity are involved in our salvation. The Holy Spirit, it says, is given to us. So the Holy Spirit is the one who's pouring out the love of God in us. And he is given to us. He's given to us as an earnest, a down payment, a seal of our salvation. Until God finally accomplishes it. And finally, ultimately glorifies himself in us and glorifies us, restoring us to his image. So in these verses, you have seen that you can glory in difficulties, in tribulation. And the way to do that is knowing how God uses them and by being certain of his love for you. God uses afflictions, tribulations, to sanctify you, to preserve you, to prepare you for the eternal weight of glory which he will give to you. Therefore, when you face tribulations of whatever kind, Make it your goal to trust the Lord in them, to endure them with patience, 
Do not become embittered against the Lord. Do not grumble against his loving chastening. And look very hard through the eyes of faith to see the love of God even in those crosses. Let us pray. Oh, Father, none of us wants to suffer. But when we look at our elder brother, our Lord Jesus Christ, we see the way to glory is through suffering. Oh, God, give us the strength. Be patient with us. Forgive us when we have hardened ourselves against your loving discipline. Grant to us, Lord, the hope that we need. Produce in us the character and the patience, Lord, that will bring about that character. We ask these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.